You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and um, uh, joining me as usual is um, David Leach, ITK analyst. Uh, how are you, David? Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are well and I'd like to welcome our special and returning guest uh, for today. Absolutely. Well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are well. Um, I'm sure they're probably in a slight state of shock, as um, I think um, most of the people are. I'm actually broadcasting from the offices of Edify Energy, the um, part of the Solar Beach in Manly, or now known as the Independent People's Republic of uh, of Warringah, and just um, happened to be passing through and uh, got caught out in time, but um, sitting here now. But Joining us is, in fact, Kane Thornton from the Clean Energy Council. Kane, um, how are you and um, how's your day gone so far? Yeah, hi, Giles. Hi, David. And uh, yeah, it's good to be with you. It's, um, yeah, look, it's been, <laughs> been a challenging uh, 48 hours or so. Uh, certainly a surprise outcome, I think, to, to many from the election. And I guess um, spending a fair bit of time reflecting on, uh, on what's just happened, uh, why it's happened and, and what might come next. What's your initial thoughts? Did, then? did something go... happen on the weekend? Did it? I, I, I took a sleeping pill. I, I took a sleeping pill and had a bad dream. I missed it. What happened? Well, I had my son's wedding, which was absolutely fantastic. And about quarter to eight, there was a big cheer um, came through as somebody announced that Tony Abbott had lost his seat. And then about two hours later, it gradually dawned on people that, um, in fact, the election result was not going the way as expected. So people drank more and danced harder and um, didn't wake up until the next morning, got a double hangover. But, um, <laughs> Kane, what has just happened? I mean, obviously, um, there's great expectations um, about um, a Labor victory and a suite of policies, which I think many people found um, pretty acceptable. Um, we're not going to have that now. We're going to have a majority Morrison government by the looks of things uh, with no clear policy definition on the table. Where does that leave clean energy? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the contrast between the two major parties on climate and energy policy were, were very stark. Probably, you know, I can't remember an election where the, where the differential was as great as it, it was. And... You know, the, the clean energy industry, we, we outlined our, our package of 10 policies that we wanted um, adopted by the, by the next government. We put them out early and, yeah, it's fair to say the ALP had adopted the, the majority, the vast majority of those policies. It was a pretty strong, strong uh, commitments, ambition and policy package behind it. And unfortunately, we didn't have much of that at all from the, from the Morrison uh, coalition. So... Look, it's obviously, you know, a challenging outcome for the industry. Um, I mean, on some levels, it's it's business as usual. I mean, we've had, um, you know, a fair bit of uncertainty uh, and a lack of, you know, clear policy direction for, for a number of years now. And so on one level, industry is a bit used to that. You know, I think it's fair to say disappointed that uh, we didn't finally get the sort of long-term policy certainty in a and a clear clean energy agenda adopted by the next government, um, you know, and really, I guess it's it's back to basics as far as uh, really, I guess, building the case for uh, the need for a much more coherent and stronger energy and climate policy, 
uh, with with the, the incoming government. Um, you know, obviously there's still a fair bit of dust to settle as far as the uh, you know the the government and the numbers, particularly in the Senate, uh, and then obviously the the allocation of portfolios. Uh, you know, in the meantime, you know, I think as others have commented, uh, you know, attention continues to focus on the states and territories to really fill the void and make sure uh, the uh, the investment keeps flowing in the in the states. And obviously, still a lot of work around market reform and grid, which um, you know, a lot of these issues are, are, are quite technical and, to be honest, a bit beyond politics. That thankfully, uh, I think it's fair to say. So still a lot to do, a lot of questions, um, you know, a lot of a lot of effort to go in from industry, I think, to keep building the case and see if we can't navigate forward and, and get that uh, much-awaited uh, policy certainty. Charles, can I uh, just point out that there's still an awful lot going on. Um, uh, to start with, we've got a large amount of uh, renewable energy that is wind and solar still to come online and still being built um, uh, about five or six gigawatts. Uh, we still, and on top of that, we have industry bodies, um, uh, the Energy Security Board and AEMO in particular, uh, working hand in hand increasingly with the AEMC uh, to facilitate the introduction of the integrated system plan. Uh, and that that plan, if it's put into place, uh, will continue to foster the development of the tr um, transition that's occurring. And, and that plan was always going to take time to implement. It was always going to take some time to build new transmission. The industry has basically chock-a-block right now. You can't get many more projects actually built right this very second. Um, uh, so... In, in a sense, there were worse times to have this uh, policy uncertainty. Of course, once all the new stuff is actually online, we certainly want to have a pipeline of further new projects to come through. But uh, uh, so we'll just have to wait and see how that part of it goes. But I'm not uh, as I don't think the implications, for instance, for uh, electricity prices uh, are that big. We've cut today, ITKs, we've cut 800 megawatts out of our unannounced projects that we were forecasting. That's always a lottery number, but if you want to look ahead, you have to try and forecast the new supply that will be announced uh, as much as look at what's already been announced. And so we have cut that back a bit, but I doubt if that will have a hugely significant impact on electricity prices. Yeah, I think that's right, David. And yeah, I think we, we need to remember the extraordinary last year or two that the industry's had and, and the incredible momentum that's that's still out there. There's still a lot of project activity, a lot of construction activity to, to come. And yeah, issues, you know, some of the big issues that the industry's facing, like grid connection, uh, like the, the uncertainty around MLFs. I mean, these are, these are important things that are sort of a bit, as I said, a bit below or outside of uh, the politics of, of the day. And so these are important issues to to address, to deal with, to work through, and, you know, that there's a lot for industry to, to do, um, uh, you know, outside of that, that bigger picture sort of policy uh, void that, that does need to be filled. But as you said, there's, um, there's a lot of momentum and there's a lot of kind of more technical, uh, specific issues to, to work through in the meantime. 
It sounds like the pause that we um, had to have. Um, David, I noticed that in your forecast today, and you wrote a very nice piece for Renew Economy talking about, you still think we'll get to 50% renewables by 2030. And it's probably worth pointing out that 50% renewables was probably not that ambitious in the great scheme of things, because it still reflected a slowdown of the, certainly from the recent couple of years of investments. Kane, I'm just wondering, I mean, you've both talked about this huge pipeline of projects, which are kind of under construction of rich financial clothes. What about the next wave then? I mean, what needs to happen for that next wave to actually occur? Is it the sorting out of the ISP and the and the ESB? Um, because some people are worried that um, where are they going to get that um, market signal from? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, look, time will tell. I think is the is the short answer. Um, you know, obviously, issues like uh, you know delivering the transmission system and and delivering on the ISP, you know, addressing the grid connection challenges and some of the technical and process issues there, MLFs, etc., are really important issues and barriers to address that that would impact that the next sort of wave and the project pipeline. I think time will tell as to the sort of market signal. I mean, as we know, the renewable energy target was was pretty critical in getting. You know, projects moving um, over the last sort of year and a half, but as we know, uh, you know, the RET has been uh, fully subscribed for some time and projects have still progressed along now, uh, you know, driven by a range of factors, um, you know, ARENA, CFC, state governments, uh, corporate PPAs, etc. They're all still there. Uh, I guess the real question is, you know, if the status quo continued, uh, the RETs, um, the RET's essentially done its job and there isn't any sort of market policy signal beyond 2020, uh, then will investments still stack up and progress on? And I think that, that's a really difficult judgment. I don't think anyone knows the answer for sure. Um, yeah, I think the, the fundamental question is, is around wholesale power prices and what confidence does the market have that ultimately wholesale power prices will remain above the long-term cost of a, a new renewable project. And that's, to, to be honest, that, that's more art than science. There's a massive number of factors that play into that. You know, will Liddell close in 2022? Uh, when will other coal-fired generators naturally come out of the market if, if there isn't a price a price signal or, or any other policy mechanism? You know, what? how does uh, EV take up, impact, demand, et cetera, et cetera? There's a lot of different factors that come into play on that and equally I think investor appetite and risk and so you know how will uh, debt and equity players um, you know how will they respond what level of risk will they take and will they be prepared to take merchant merchant risk so I think these are all the big questions I don't think anyone knows no one has a monopoly on uh, answering those those questions and I think to a certain degree time will tell as to whether investors will weigh in you know, under some circumstances or whether they really will sit on their hands and therefore, uh, you know, the extent to which there will be a, a material slowdown in, particularly in the utility scale, end of the marketplace, uh, absent um, some form of, you know, uh, sensible, coherent policy response, which is still something that I think is is possible. I mean, I think the election outcome... Uh, you know, I think most analysts and indeed um, senior members of the Liberal Party acknowledge that uh, the climate and energy policy uh, void from the coalition was still a, a real challenge for them and a real risk for them. And you'd expect that over time and certainly heading to the next election, 
uh, it's something they're going to want to need to address in some in some form. So I don't think we should assume that. Uh, you know, there's certainly scenarios where the coalition do uh, do manage to address that in some form or another. But uh, a bit early to speculate Charles, on, on I, how or how likely. Charles, a couple of points I'd make. Uh, uh, in, in terms of the outlook for electricity prices, you have to remember that the reason why um, pool prices are high now is basically threefold uh, or fourfold. Uh, there's been a drought on, so there's a big reduction in hydro from Tasmania. But more importantly, uh, there's a, a real tightness in global coal and, and in Australian gas markets. So I don't think anyone's expecting the gas price to come down. But the coal price uh, has been high basically because of China. US dollar thermal coal prices are slackening off, but not really enough to move the electricity price down in Australia. So I, I still think myself that the odds are it's only the new supply that will, that will move the futures price down. That's on the one side. We mentioned, uh, uh, Kane mentioned several times, and we all talk about state policies. Victoria's been pulling the weight a fair way. Uh, but the uh, <clears throat> uh, they have uh, network uh, constraints. No, no. I was going to say it's really Queensland, where of course the election, the the um, the renewables, the clean energy story uh, didn't sell in Queensland. Let's face it, um, and yet uh, and and there's this ongoing thing about coal in Queensland, and the state government there has ostensibly a fifty percent renewables target. But as we all know, other than setting up Clean Co, it's done SFA, and I think we all know what those initials mean, but I'll just repeat them. It's done SFA to actually move anything forward. And so it's really going to be up to the Queen, in one sense, up to the Queensland state government how seriously they actually take their own 50% uh, target, or do they, in fact, say that, in fact, Queenslanders want coal? Um, I hope they don't, because. Um, We've been looking at, I've been looking at the climate change data and it is absolutely horrendous. I mean, it's horrendous. The, the global sea level is up eight and a half centimetres in the last 25 years. Eight and a half centimetres. It's a pretty big swimming pool, the global oceans. Um, yes, I was, uh, quite, of, I was quite, surprised, quite surprised when I saw that figure today and I remember actually asking you about it and um, sure enough, there it is. And of course, the heat content in the oceans is just absolutely incredible. We're putting 12 times as much, 15 times as much heat into the energy into the oceans every year as we produce from, from oil, gas and coal each year, 15 times. Uh, so eventually we're going to heat up that giant swimming pool, which is the world's oceans, and that's going to go on for a long time. And, and so I continue to think that uh, Queensland government really needs to work out uh, where where its own future lies. If the CFMEU in Queensland had been put more in line and hadn't been Labor itself hadn't been so divided, uh, perhaps things would have been different. But climate change wasn't the only thing going on in the election, as from what I'm told. As I say, I slept through it, so I, I don't know what happened. Uh, but but I think there are other things going on there. But certainly, that's um, for sure. But 
Yeah, Ken, I'm just wondering, um, what about selling the message about policies? I mean, sure, I mean, I think it's sort of, you know, it was just, it was described as a climate change election. Some people now sort of saying, well, it probably lost because there was too many policies out there. There was the various tax things, there was the, the rebates and, and, and what have you. Is there anything to learn here for the clean energy industry in the way it presents and sells policies? And I'm thinking about, particularly if we look at some of the big voting changes that have happened in seats which are around coal-fired power stations in the Hunter Valley, up in Townsville, well, there's not one there, but they want to have one there. Um, is there messages to be done about the transition and all the benefits from renewables? Although it seems to me we've probably been saying those things for a while anyway. Yeah, I think I think there definitely is, Giles. And yeah, you know, I think um, you know, I think people in the industry and um, you know probably got a sense that we've been chipping away at, at some of these arguments and particularly the cost issue for quite some time and, and we have uh you know I, I think there's no question there was a pretty there was a pretty scathing uh, attack campaign you know late uh late in the campaign on the cost of climate action and uh and and the alp's policies which which you know, i think clearly um uh, cut through to some degree but i think the big challenge you know as you said is is in places like Queensland, I think, where this debate was still framed as a debate of, of the environment versus the economy. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's somewhat ironic, really. We, we felt as though we'd made a lot of progress in Queensland, largely because of the large-scale solar industry and the literally thousands of jobs that have been created, real jobs out in rural and regional parts of Queensland from the large-scale solar industry. You know, I think we... We had a sense that that had started to really shift the, the debate and people could see that, you know, you could deal with the environment and the economy at the same time. But I think the, you know, I think the election outcome, particularly in some of those Queensland uh, seats, probably suggests that there's a long way to go and that those communities still, uh, you know, they're still very polarised and they haven't seen or they don't believe um, that, you know, you can transition to, to renewables and still uh, have employment opportunities for some of these communities. So I think there's definitely, there's definitely more work to be done, I think, by, by industry uh, in those parts of the country. And look, I, I just want to say it, it's easy to criticise and, and, and there will be a lot of criticism thrown around uh, at the losers. But I, I do think the Labor Party did a terrible job of, I mean, Mark Butler, I think, would have, is fantastic on Butler policy. I agreed with every single part of the Labor Party policy uh, in regard to electricity and energy and, and, and the funds and putting money into the CFC. That's all perfect. But in terms of that cost argument, the, the Labor Party did a piss-weak job of answering that. They did not come up with an answer, and it was so easy to give an answer you know, the cost, 50% uh, renewables produces lower electricity prices, not higher electricity prices. The emissions reduction fund, or uh, the safeguards mechanism, that wasn't going to cost very much because a lot of companies would have been exempt. I mean, it's easy to say this after, but we said it during the campaign, and I simply, I can't excuse the Labor Party not doing a better job on actually answering that. But anyway, that's history. I don't think we should dwell on history. I think we should look forward. The other thing we haven't mentioned is that the behind the meter industry will continue to grow very strongly for so long as electricity prices uh, uh, provide an incentive. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a level of irony in, in that area indeed because I think the more chaotic energy policy gets and indeed the, the higher power prices go uh, then the more uh, 
the quicker I think households and businesses will go it alone, will go solar and, and batteries to, to manage their own risk and manage their own power prices. So there's a, a strange irony, I think, in, in that we know there's record levels of rooftop uptake at the moment. And to be honest, it's hard to see that uh, that's slowing down anytime soon. I'm just wondering what you guys think about the um, main uh, coalition policy, which is this um, underwriting new generation investments, UNGI program. And it, um, there's a couple of projects shortlisted before um, they went into caretaker mode. There was 12, most notably Trevor St. Baker's um, proposal to upgrade Vales Point Power Station. And I think there was a new coal-fired power station in there somewhere, um, or maybe in the background. And there's a couple of other interesting ones, various pumped hydro projects in South Australia and elsewhere, which are linked to renewables and a bunch of gas projects. David, what do you expect to happen here and what, do, what, what for you are the concerns and the pitfalls? I mean, it looks to me like Trevor St. Baker will get his wish of a government subsidy to extend the um, life of Vales Point Power Station, or is he dreaming? Well, as far as I've read, that's only a $15 million. Look, I'll be honest, uh, there were very few details on all of those projects published. Uh, I didn't pay any attention to them, in all honesty, because... Firstly, I don't think there is a price signal for new dispatchable power in the market at the moment. Uh, secondly, even so, we're going to see 550 megawatts of Wyvernhoe uh, pumped hydro in Queensland get a lot more determined to make money, if I can put it that way, as Miles George at Cleanco gets it up and running. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the $15 million that was going to go to keep Vale's Point going, that's actually trivial compared to the amount of money that, uh, I mean, AGL is spending $350 million a year on its thermal generation just keeping it going. If you do the numbers, that, that equates to about $10 a megawatt hour of, of, of CapEx that they're spending. And I've, I'm quite sure that, um, uh, you know, a number of the coal plants, uh, mines in New South Wales are actually struggling to keep the coal up at the right price to the New South Wales generators. Um, look, I, we don't even know what the cabinet will be. I, I think the election proves, uh, in all honesty, that Peter Dutton was right. Malcolm Turnbull was, was death in Queensland and Scott Morrison's a hero. That's, that's what the scoreboard clearly shows. Uh, most of the people that the uh, right wing in the in the Liberal Party didn't like, uh, um, uh, Chris Pine, Julie Bishop, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, those people have all gone. And what you're left with uh, is, is, is people that are not very friendly towards renewable energy. And so they'll be quite keen to get gas projects and the like up. Uh, all that said, it's ex exactly as Kane pointed out earlier, you don't want to prejudge uh, what a party will do based on what it said before the election. You know, clever politicians quite often get into power and then they adjust as they need to. We don't even know what the new cabinet's going to be. So there is some prematureness mm. in this conversation. Okay, Kane, cheer me up. Um, is, is the energy transition cancelled or merely paused? No, I, I, it's, it's certainly not cancelled. No, I don't think it's even paused. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it will continue. I mean, as we've discussed, um, uh, rooftop distributed um, generation, I think, will continue to, to be deployed at, at the same rates. You know, there's really, uh, there's nothing material that will, that will slow that down. You know, as I said, there's some, obviously, some questions and, and a bit of anxiety about what happens with utility scale investment, you know, the, the states, I mean, I think, as David mentioned, you know, I think Queensland is now getting its gates on as far as Cleanco goes. They've got some commitments and they're going to have to move. 
But, you know, we know that every other um, state and territory government, while, you know, they've been heavy on rhetoric about the need for, for federal leadership, but we also know that they've got responsibility in the eyes of the electorate for energy uh, policy and energy prices. And so, you know, I think this puts pressure on governments like New South Wales and South Australia to, to keep pushing on and to, to fill that void. And as David said, you know, um, I think Scott Morrison, you know, one of the lessons I think of, of the weekend for him will be that they are exposed on energy and climate. Uh, yes, it's complex in Queensland, but there's an inevitability here about uh, what's happening both in terms of climate science, about the, the community's awareness and also the the reality of the energy transition. And, you know, I, I think this is an area, you know, Julie Bishop, people at like Julie Bishop and Arthur Sinodunas were, were calling it on, on Saturday night. This is an area they, they need to take a look at. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to see them going uh, very deep on energy and climate policy uh, very soon. But, um, you know, I'm still optimistic. Again, you know, th their position here is to focus on a strong economy. And I think we all know to have a strong economy, you need a strong energy system. And, uh, you know, um, the lack of policy uh, hasn't been exposed as an issue in the short term. But in another year or two or three years' time, then that's only going to grow. And, and we've already heard some of the big business voices you know, make this point very, very quickly after the election. This is an issue that, that's not going to go away on, uh, on the government. And, and I'm still optimistic at some point in time we'll get some common sense return. So just, just on the economy, the it's worth, it's, sorry, Giles, I'll come back, uh, take over in a second, but I just want to point out on the economy, we're terribly dependent on China and we're terribly dependent on iron ore prices and coal prices, both of which, and gas prices, all, all of which are driven by the Chinese economy. So, you know, a smart government uh, would be looking to diversify away from that risk somehow or other. Sorry, back to you, Giles. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering, Kane, just away from the politics and actually sort of talking about some of the other issues facing the clean energy industry. I mean, we've made a bit of the fact that Snowy Hydro um, secured their contracts at supposedly around $40, $50 a megawatt hour. And even with firming, it came in below the um, government's target for wholesale prices. I'm just wondering, I'm starting to get some feedback around the place now that because of all the different connection issues, because of things like marginal loss factors um, and the risk premium from investors now and some of the other things which are happening around the place, a lot of wind and solar farms are being asked to sort of put in things like synchronous condensers. Are we still actually able to deliver some of those wind and solar projects at around those prices or has the, um, has the cost actually had a bit of a bump up of, of late? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, um, you know, developing a renewable project has definitely gotten harder in the last 12 months. And that one way or another will will translate to uh, higher costs, whether that's in the risk, um, in the risk premiums, the financing costs, the construction costs, uh, or indeed some of the extra sort of direct um, kit and design costs that, that is needing to be incorporated in these projects. So, yeah, there's no there's no doubt that's translated to um, some extra uh, some extra cost into projects. Uh, you know, I guess again, time will tell as to whether they can be absorbed. You know, that there's an active. We know there's a, a lot of discussion and sort of negotiation going on between developers and their EPC construction contractors about risk sharing uh, and, and a bit of a reset a bit of a reset there. So you know, there's a lot of moving parts at the moment. I think there's a bit of a reset occurring across the, the industry. 
um, you know, it, it's I, I think it's it's hard to see um, you know project costs continuing to fall at the rates they have. Put it that way. You know, I think at least a sort of a bit of a flattening off is is probably likely. Um, uh, and then I guess it comes down to how quickly some of these uncertainties are kind of worked through, and and you know grid connection processes, system strength requirements, etc. How how quickly they're worked through, and a bit a bit more certainty uh, brought back to developers as to what effect it has on costs, project costs over the over the longer term. And Giles, two points there. One is the Aussie dollar. Uh, if it keeps weakening, then the cost of the imported uh, bits and pieces goes up. So we have to factor that in. Uh, but the other thing I'd point out to all the buyers of renewable energy, that is particularly the corporate sector, you guys have got a great opportunity because in the end, uh, the project's long run marginal cost generally is higher. It's higher than the PPA price that they offer. So these guys all want to, uh, developers want to get a, uh, some of their project, get their project done. And so they, they have a lost leader, frankly. Uh, on, on, you know, the first, say the first half of the output. So corporate buyers are actually buying wind and solar cheaper than what it can, the producer can produce it for. And, and that's something that you should, you know, encourage you to sign up. The message has been spoken. Well, thank you very much. Kane, any final thoughts before we, uh, before we wrap up? Uh, look, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a challenging sort of uh, period ahead for the industry. But, uh, you know, I think we need to keep remembering it's been an extraordinary couple of years, got huge momentum, you know, and I think the uh, history, uh, I think, will be on the side of the transition to clean energy. And, uh, you know, we've, this transition has taken a non-linear path to date. Uh, I think it's going to continue to do that. And, uh, you know, I think we know we're on the right side of history and uh, we'll get there eventually. So ch chin up. The path to true love never did run smooth, Giles. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for you two, you both of those encouraging and reassuring words at the end there. Um, I'd like to thank <laughs> I'd like to thank Edify Energy uh, on the Solar Beach in the People's Republic of Rwiringa for um, letting me use their offices today and sort of branching out at least temporarily into the uh, broadcasting industry. I'd also like to thank our regular and continuing sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches, for your ongoing support. And uh, we'll be back next week and um, be fascinating to see what happens with between now and then and um, who gets portfolios and what's said about the future of energy. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again in a week's time. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by SolarAy Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.